This is the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Startups Podcast. I'm here with I don't know, should I introduce you as the oil guy again? <laughs> he already did that last episode. <laughs> no. It got, it got it's not out. surprising that I'm here with you because as our wives know, we are uh, completely inseparable most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> our wives make fun of us. We recently started playing Battlefield online. And so Colin was like, hey, you want to get a headset? And I was like, yeah, why not? So as if we don't spend 24-7 together, now we play Battlefield and, and talk to each other. <laughs> we got to keep the team building going. keep it going, man. Now we're just in a... Simulated virtual war on Xbox Live. <laughs> <laughs> so a few quick announcements before we kind of roll into the episode. Just like the last episode that we talked about, we've been doing the vlog under Digital Wildcatters on YouTube. We've been putting out content on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. Just kind of vlogging the chronicles of, of Jake and Colin and kind of what we do. People demanded it and we have delivered. So if there's any cool things that you guys want to see, reach out and let us know. We're gonna also, if you have any questions... You know, every once in a while we have people send us messages for questions. We'd like to start doing some Q&A sessions, uh, whether yeah. it's on the podcast or on the vlog on YouTube. So if you have any questions, send them our way uh, on yeah. LinkedIn or through our website. Cool. We are still in conversations with different companies about sponsorships. By the time this comes out, we could have one locked down. But if you're interested in kind of getting your company in front of our audience and kind of working with us to help us keep doing what we are doing, that'd be fantastic. Just feel free to reach out. Speaking of doing what we're doing... We have a good review to read. Yeah, we do. It's from Robert Stroud. He said, over the past three days, I've binge listened to all of your oil and gas startup podcasts. Excellent content and information presented. I'll be listening to several a second time. Thank you. Thank you, Robert Stroud. Appreciate that, man. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Thing about covers our announcement. Oh, one thing. Energy Tech Night. Yeah, you can't forget. Energy, Energy Tech, Tech Night, Night, February 21st, 6 to 9 p.m. We work downtown. We're going to have a, a panel of uh, leaders from different EMP companies talking about digitalization in upstream oil and gas. And then we're going to have, I wouldn't really call it a pitch off. It's more yeah, just presentation. like presentations, demonstrations, walkthroughs from uh, different companies in this space that are focused on digitalization. And then followed by cold beer and pizza, bunch of good people in oil and gas yep. finance. So should be, be a good time. time. Yeah. So we'll drop links in the show notes for all of those. Uh, you guys can check those out. So without further ado, let's go ahead and introduce our guest, Ash Gilmore. What's Hi. up, bud? Good to be here. Yeah. It's good to have you, man. So you are with Tracks. I've known you for quite some time. And so I'm going to purposely try to forget what you guys do as best as I can. So what is, from a, from a high level point of view, what is it exactly that you guys do? So essentially we're helping EMP companies and mineral buyers build an ownership knowledge graph that okay. allows their ownership data to like be propagated into their different tools, whether it be their CRM or their LMS tools, their land and lease management solutions. So the goal is just to make it so that they can make decisions faster and make sure that they're the most accurate possible. Okay. Interesting. I think, I don't know when I, when did I meet you actually? I don't even remember when I met you. I think that we've been connecting on LinkedIn for a while. Yeah. Because I've had some blockchain posts regarding land and title using their dropping some knowledge on. Really quick, <laughs> what, what, we, he, he started a tradition today. He started a tradition. He showed up with it with a sack, and I was mm. like, "What's in the sack?" And he he brought us a bottle of good whiskey and some Deep Eddie's vodka. So he came with the brown bag. I'm yeah. gonna let y'all know if y'all want to be in the podcast in the future. <laughs> better come bearing gifts. You're gonna have to one up, Ashley. <laughs> <laughs> 
And then, well, actually, I saw Ashley when we were walking. We had that lunch meeting in City Center and heard someone yelling. I was like, what the fuck? I think I hear someone yelling at us. And <laughs> was, that your, was that your apartment? No, that is actually where our office is located. Okay. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, Y'all so, are right here by us and you're yeah, not too far yeah. away from us. Okay. I actually live in City Center as well, though, over at like the Pearl area. Oh, okay. And then cool. just ride a scooter into work. So. Nice. I was nice. going to ask about that. I don't know if you're still riding the scooter. Do you have any, do you have any bruises or I've never, I've never actually, this came up in a, a client meeting because Laredo Energy is right across from our office. And so they've seen me ride in on my scooter and they were talking about how they've been doing research into the different people that have been getting injured. Like only 4% of scooter riders, I guess, wear helmets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we were actually just talking about scooters again at lunch and we were with our buddies from Reservoir Data Systems, and we've already talked about it on this podcast, but they got in a scooter accident, had a broken arm from it, and we're talking, my little boy got an electric scooter, electric razor scooter for Christmas, and last or yesterday, I tied a rope around his waist and had my little girl getting towed around on her car by it, and she's like, Dad, I don't think this is such a good idea, and I'm like, oh, it's, a, it's a great idea. <laughs> the more dangerous, the better. <laughs> but yeah, we're all about electric scooters. So, kind of... Let's rewind it back before we talk too much about tracks. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I don't I don't know too much about you, except Jake just told me that you're a lawyer, that you went to school for law. So let's kind of talk about your background and everything up to this point. Yeah, so I would consider myself an entrepreneur at heart. I've always wanted to build cool things and solve cool problems. And with tracks, I actually learned that what's really rewarding is just working with really intelligent cool people on cool projects because it's just really rewarding. And so that's really the motivation with tracks right now for, for me is for sure. Yes, it's great to build this company and, you know, hopefully get a payday. But in reality, working with really smart people, people that are smarter than you every day has been the most rewarding part of it. Mm -hmm. The law degree portion is actually how we started tracks though. So prior to tracks, I started another company called cloud power with my co-founder of this company, David Dewey. And we exited that company. We were waiting to get paid. And we started up a couple of other startups in between that really we couldn't monetize. Ended up just, you know, letting them, you know, we open sourced a cloud aggregator, for instance. We have some drone patents uh, or a patent that we have tried to monetize. And, and now we're doing tracks. So how did tracks come out of it? I was in law school. My family was in oil and gas. And I uh, just thought the best way to get into oil and gas law was to go check out the courthouses where people were running title. Mm -hmm. I was there, I saw people using note cards and legal pads to kind of like piece together, you know, who owns the minerals in the ground. And it was just a really foreign concept because CloudPower was an enterprise content management provider. Essentially, we, we helped people move to the cloud and, you know, made it so that their data was available to them anywhere and everywhere. And so I thought we could apply the same types of technologies to this space. The thing is, you're wondering, you know, why aren't they already doing it? There must be something else there. So I went back and learned everything I could about oil and gas law. And then I went to work for a title attorney shop here in Houston. Amazing place to work. Tepic and Associates are very successful. Stephen Tepic is really good at, you know, uh, getting his guys to, to work hard and do quality work. So um, while I was there, I saw that the same processes were actually being done by attorneys. And I thought there should be a better way. And I can go into the the first iteration of tracks if you guys want me to. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, so I'm sitting there at my cubicle and I've been given this stack of title opinions. And my job was going to be to 
confirm that these legal formulas, which are one-third of one-eighth of one-fourth of one-sixth plus one-fourth of one-third, equals to the eighth decimal point, this other number. We got a whole bunch of this desk behind me. <laughs> oh, you do? Okay, yeah. 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 And so I was literally looking for a TI-82 at the time so I could just like <laughs> type these things out. And I start working on it for a couple hours and I couldn't do it. So I call up my co-founder, David. I'm like, David, can you please code something that does this automatically? And David's like a genius level coder. I think I've won the lottery three times in my life. And one of them was meeting Dave. We can go on that later. But <laughs> what are the other two? I'm kind of curious. <laughs> the, the, the other was our second developer. <laughs> and then the third is our new CFO. But, you know, we joke that he was more like a good bingo night. I was thinking like, <laughs> I was thinking like a girlfriend or like, I won the lottery actually. Or... <laughs> a no. good bingo night. <laughs> so he's like, well, how am I going to get paid on this? We're still waiting on the cloud power money. We we're just, you know, he wanted to know it. And the other two things just hadn't worked out. And he's like hyper frustrated at this point, I'm sure. I'm like, don't worry about the money. Please just do this as a favor. We'll figure it out. Three hours later, he had a web app live that we could just drag and drop the formulas in and it would compare and tell us how far off they were. And then the rest was just building a business plan around why was that a problem, mm-hmm. right? Because why was I having to do that in the first place? Those numbers should always be a lot. Like, why is that happening? And so actually that's where we met our third co-founder. Rob Anderson was across the hall. I was in a cubicle. He was an actual attorney with 10 plus years experience, you know, super tech savvy. He's invested in lots of startups and he started to explain to me some of the problems and we built a plan and then went out and raised some money. Damn. Yeah. That's, I mean, to be able to have a dev that you might tell like, look, this is the problem, spin something up. And then what'd you say in a few hours? You had something? Yeah, it was. So back uh, out to yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> you you won the lottery. That's, yeah. no, that's yeah. amazing. I agree with that statement. David, his name's David Dewey. He was, and I, you know, I don't get to talk about him very often, but so definitely going to do it on this podcast. Oh, yeah. yeah, take the opportunity. He, he was coding like at six or seven. He can code in binary assembly. He can code in any language that you throw at him. He worked on for NASA JPL Deep Space Communications team when he was still a junior in computer science at University of Washington. He's created like computer vision training tools for developers trying to learn how to code. He's a savant when it comes to developing. So we were running cross country together and, you know, I introduced myself and we were hanging out and he probably knows the exact details, but I remember our first actual project together was he was trying to learn DirectX or some some version of, you know, Visual C or whatever. And essentially he was building a video game called like Laser Combat and he needed help designing levels and things like that. And so I was like, I'll help you design some levels. You know how you're on the school bus? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're riding the school bus to to the next track meet or you're riding it back and you're eating a power bar. And <laughs> David's back there with a the laptop coding. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, you should, uh, should make it so I can design some levels with you. <laughs> So first version you guys had within a few hours, I think it's obviously how far is that first version from what you guys have now? Yeah. So that first version, we never monetized. We never sold. We left it open. I ended up leaving the firm after the end of the summer. And even though there were probably some partnership opportunities at the firm, it just, to me, the bigger opportunity was to partner with some friends and family. I remember, and you guys talked about, you know, talking about the struggles. It's so hard to innovate in that space and to raise money. We were offered a decent amount if we were willing to, you know, kind of give the software to the firm and let them do, do you know, what they want to do with it. 
but we decided to, you know, take it on ourselves. And so we turned away from, you know, significant, potentially a significant amount of money and then raised from family and friends, I think it was 37,500 bucks, Nice. which you don't really need that much money. But David, like I said before, was like, when am I getting paid? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I gave him like 30,000 of it. And then the other five, we started just initially meeting out and marketing yeah. with people. So, yeah, that's, uh, you know, especially when you have a good developer like that, like, okay, cool. Did some work. Where's my money at? <laughs> people talk about getting lucky all the time. Right. And yeah. So, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say I'm not lucky. Right. But I don't, I don't think any successful entrepreneur can ever say that they're not lucky. There's a stroke of luck to everything, whether it's timing or finding mm-hmm. the right person, you know, whatever it might be. So before we dive more into what you do, can you walk us through what is the title process look like now without tracks? Yeah. So since I use tracks every day, I might, you know, cross over a little bit, but I'll try to keep it separated. Yeah. Essentially someone like, uh, let's say the VP of exploration and the EMP company circles an area on a map and Mm -hmm. he wants to find out if that area is available. They'll do a quick lease check using something like maybe DI and let's say they do have this target area that they want to go after. They'll then take it to their VP of, you know, land who probably did that initial lease check also. And they'll decide to do, you know, if they decide to go after the asset, they'll do what's basically also called a lease check, but it's like a more in-depth lease check. They're just confirming the executive interest and seeing that it's available by going to a courthouse or using a digital courthouse, DI courthouse, and Courthouse Direct both have great, great platforms for mm-hmm. searching for documents digitally, which is a huge time saving. But once you've identified that, you've done this initial lease check, then they can go out and take leases. So they pulled all the documents back to sovereignty usually or to some period of time that says, okay, these are the owners of the minerals. And so we need to lease from the executive right holders. I don't know. Do you know how mineral interest works? For the most part, let's go ahead and walk, go walk through that as well. Yeah, yeah for, I mean, we have high-level <laughs> understanding of all of this, but some of our listeners, are, a majority of them probably don't. So let's kind of talk about the whole the whole process. Yeah, so mineral interest is made up of the bundle of sticks, and any lawyer is going to probably laugh when they hear that, but or attorney, but the bundle of sticks is the executive right, the bonus right, the right to delay rentals, the right to ingress and egress, and, of course, the royalty. The royalty is the right to be paid, and the executive is the right to take a lease. So those bundles of sticks, the bundle of sticks for any one particular point of interest have to be tied together. Meaning if I have an executive interest and you guys each, you know, have executive interest and mineral interest, but let's say that I have your executive interest and you have my executive interest for whatever reason, that would probably never happen. But the point is, if I took a lease, you would start getting the royalty, not me. But if you're looking at Excel, those numbers look the same, right? So if you have a 25% and I have a 25% executive and royalty, I'm not trying to get too into the weeds. The point is these rights have to be exactly tied to their exact executive right. Mm -hmm. And that's really the problem that we've solved solved with tracks. Everyone needs to be able to do this computation. If somebody claims that they can, you know, chain title and do calculations and they can't trace any of these other rights to their exact executive right, well, then that's when you're going to get busted on your title, right? You hear all the time about NPRIs. I'm sure you've... so non-participating royalty interests. Mm-hmm. They just don't have their executive right. You need to make sure you lease the person that does. It can be catastrophic if you lease from the wrong person, right? So if somebody comes forward, they end up getting 100% royalty, meaning you get nothing, which you normally would get 80% as an EMP company. And they own the rig in some cases because you're trespassing. So it's a 
It's a total loss if you don't lease from the. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. I don't know that either. That's, I would say that's pretty catastrophic yeah. consequences. <laughs> so is the use case mostly on the exploration side? Or is it if you, so say I go out and, you know, we're, we're planning on acquiring a bunch of assets in the, in the near future. We go out, do a huge PDP deal. We acquire a significant amount of assets. Do we need to go through and actually run all that title again? Before you acquire the asset, I would say that you should do some diligence for sure. Mm-hmm. Okay. The market openly accepts that uh, 5 to 15% are defective. The underlying title is defective. Now, if you're going to flip it right away, maybe you can avoid some of that risk, but just simply by passing it on to the next guy. But yeah, <laughs> could, are you okay? Are you comfortable with the the possibility of losing 15% of your asset is what you have to ask yourself when mm-hmm. you're determining whether or not you want to rerun the title. So a lot of companies before they, or even after they acquire an asset, will have that window of time to run their most valuable assets. They'll rerun that title just to confirm, right? So Yeah, confirm and verify that it's all kosher. Yeah. And running title is pretty much, so you're going back to essentially the point of inception for all the way back the entire title chain, right? Yep. And then another company comes in and does that work all over again, right? What do you think? Because I think we've we've had some comments back and forth on like on LinkedIn with like blockchain. So what if you were able to like verify that, right? Instead of having to a new company comes in and has to do the exact same work over and over again. I know you I know you mentioned there were some challenges there of getting like courthouses and stuff on board actually to adopt something like that. But what do you think the use cases there would be? So I mean, blockchain's amazing, right? No one's disputing that. We could have avoided a lot of health issues with the recent lettuce issue or whatever. Mm-hmm. If, if you know, we had a blockchain to identify very instantly where, you know, where the problem areas were and what farms. And anyways, but with with oil and gas title, the challenge is with blockchain, you're not supposed to be able to change that mm-hmm. chain. And what happens in oil and gas law is any judge can come and you know, create some new precedents that changes the way a document should be interpreted. And so, you know, we should talk about document interpretation a little bit later because that's something special about tracks that other people don't do. So to answer your question, I think that blockchain could possibly work, It's but it's not just about, you know, getting courthouses to adopt it. Because, right? mm-hmm. of course, you'd have to get everyone to adopt it to yep. make it meaningful. But even if you did it on a small scale and you just focused on the oil and gas asset, you know, the, the courthouses in, within those areas, you would still have to get people to agree to interpretations that were immutable, right? So that couldn't yeah. be changed. So how does, let's get into a little bit of legal talk here. How can a judge's interpretation change on what something means over time? And then going back to your document interpretation services that you have at Trex, let's dive into that a little bit. That's all over my head right now at this point, so I'm curious. Yeah. So, and I'm probably not the expert on, I'm, I'm definitely not the expert on this. I could refer you guys to so many people. I, answer <laughs> I actually thought about having like a phone a friend option for this. <laughs> it's like, can I have give, two, give, give you an option? Two phone a friend options. We, for, we'll, we'll, we'll put a disclaimer out there. You know, we won't hold you to anything that you say, but you know, for someone like me and many others listening, you know, we're not familiar with this process uh, in the weeds. So, you know, whatever you have to provide to that conversation would be helpful. Yeah, I feel like there's a lot of experts in the area. I'm, I think you guys are connected to Kurt Horn, for instance. I think he's brilliant and he's he pretty much, you know, knows how the market's moving with interpretations and how documents are being interpreted and, you know, how that affects the relationship between other documents. 
But essentially, a judge can just come in. So say I want, say that because this document is being interpreted one way, I get nothing. And then if it's interpreted a, se- a different way, all of a sudden I get everything, right? It encourages me to then sue you, right, For to change the interpretation of this phrase, mm-hmm. right? And if that phrase is all of a sudden, if the judge agrees with me in that moment, you know, there's all kinds of steps after that. But generally, if if it's decided that now this phrase means this thing, then all of a sudden every interpretation or every document with that phrase in it is now interpreted differently. And the outcome- So not just for that case, but for other cases. For other so that's cases. That's a precedent, yeah. Okay. That's a precedence, yeah. Mm. And it's state by state, right? So That's interesting. So I'm not a lawyer. So walk us through, so walk us through, we, we talked about the title process and then we got off on a tangent about blockchain. Let's talk about how we would use, so let's, let's just use us as an example, right? So we would be looking for Gulf Coast assets probably by Q3 of this year. How would we use tracks? So give me a little bit more detail about your project. What are your goals? Yes, yes. We're, we're doing, I don't know if it, does it, does it work for non-ops or no? Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we're doing a uh, capital raise in by hopefully by Q2 of this year non-op focusing on mostly on conventional assets in the Gulf Coast, but it is a basing agnostic strategy. I think it's one of the wonderful things about being a non-op, but with a heavy emphasis, we think there's a lot of value to be extracted out of the Gulf Coast in particular. Okay. So it'd be a PDP buy, and then also be drill co essentially non-op with some of the operators. But, you know, just from a basic operator standpoint, you know, what is the value prop that tracks can come in and, you know, are we looking at obviously time and efficiency is is the mm-hmm. underlying you know theme of it but so first of all our biggest clients right now are mineral buyers by far mm. right okay um, the reason is they just see value instantly they run a lot of title and they need to get to the bottom of the line at who owns the minerals right mm. and so if you're a mineral buyer tracks is really compelling because well right now everyone's operating on the same lead list Right. And that is like, yeah. whether it's tax rolls, lease records, whatever. Right. It's all public information. It's so funny. We go, we meet with lots of, you know, it's all public information. We meet with tons of, of mineral buyers and essentially, you know, they all think they have this secret sauce. And, you know, first of all, to all you mineral buyers out there, yes, you do. You are all very special. <laughs> You're all very special. Use tracks. <laughs> but, but, the reality is you all all have the same problems, right? It's lead generation and the cost of evaluating the the value of that mm-hmm. of that asset you're trying to buy, right? So if you're competing for a lead, meaning everyone in the room got it at the same time the railroad commission released it or whoever released this list that you guys are using, your the price of that asset's going to go up and so are your chances of not getting it or not mm-hmm. winning. So if you can get to an area that maybe ahead of the drill bit, or if you're able to make it more feasible to, you know, run bigger areas of title, for instance, then you can start acquiring these interests in a less competitive model and you can start presenting them. You know, you can move from an LOI to a check faster. Okay. What that means is you're just, you know, people, once you offer someone something, they're going to go research, right? What is this worth? You know, all of a sudden you're competing with yourself in that situation, right? You reach out to this new person they're like, I think it's worth this and you're offering them, you know, something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now they're going to go talk to everyone. Yeah. Right? They're so, going to go shop it. So, so do, do mineral buyers sit there and wait for EMPs to come and buy it or do they, they shop it? Do they sell? Yeah. Like, do they shop it around? Like, do they know that, Hey, 
company X is coming into this space. They get ahead of the drill bit, like you mentioned. They come in, compile all these mineral rights, run the title, and then do they just market it to that company? Or do they sit on it and just wait for somebody to buy it? Oh, or it's have, probably a combination of both, I would imagine. I don't think any of them have the strategy of waiting to make money. Some people have longer strategies of holding and putting bigger groups together or you know bigger blocks together or whatever, and then selling them. Other ones, actually I'm meeting with someone on Friday, that their goal is they, they won't buy anything they're not prepared to drill because a lot of these drill co's, essentially they're seeing the change, right? And so you know maybe drilling isn't so you know beneficial to them right now but hey if i can go buy some minerals right now while the prices are low or whatever then then i can turn around and drill those and make money that way or or flip them or whatever so you see a lot of pe back companies that are taking a portion of their cash and they're you know investing in minerals so or buying minerals right that's really interesting because i was thinking of tracks and a use case of an EMP, but that makes so much sense that it's actually the mineral funds where you guys have the biggest value proposition because these guys are extremely competitive running off all the same data. So it's really who can get to that asset, do the due diligence the fastest. And really, you know, you start using technologies like tracks. If you don't use them, you're going to lose your edge and you're going to be far beyond the competition. You know, we work with you know, we have, you know, a, a wide array of clients and I go into even a bigger array of people that don't end up buying. And I actually, whenever I meet a mineral buyer that doesn't buy tracks, I don't care what they do with their tests on. I don't care about their pilots. I know that there's no better way to, to run title. And I know who I have, you know, I can see clients that are working and operating every major basin in the United States and they're just going faster more efficient, more transparent, and far more accurate than what they're doing. And if they pass on tracks, you know, we actually price tracks to try to capture 10% of what we're saving them, but that doesn't even capture any of the value adds that we've been talking about today. Just 10%, the cost that uh, we save you on, say, your landman research or title, you know, running, we're just trying to capture 10% of that in our fee. So, no, oh, okay. It's actually so how do you guys how do you guys structure your fees is it are you allowed to talk about this on, on the podcast i mean is this is it SaaS? yeah is it is it SaaS model or yeah, yeah, user a, base how do you guys it's a software it? as a service model okay. that's based on usage we've looked at a lot of different pricing models and everyone always asks that question so when we go into a sales meeting for instance or we'll, everyone always wants to see a demo because the very first thing is no one believes that we can do this mm mm-hmm. mhm so once we accomplish that, the very next question is immediately, oh, we love it. Let's now buy it. How much is it? But they've avoided talking about the standardization, the accuracy, the transparency, the value. <laughs> you know, they're just jumping right to, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. This should be the same price as all my other tools, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not. So we've tried to base it on acreage. We've tried to base it on tracks. We've tried to price it based on number of instruments. And now we just have this general usage algorithm that we – we talk to them about uh, what are they trying to do this year. And and our goal is to explain to them that here's your ROI and we're trying to capture 10%. 10% of that. Okay. Yeah. That's really interesting because it is kind of tough, especially, you know, Jake and I have seen this personally. When you have a new innovative software, they, they want to find something that it's comparable to. Just like you said, they're like, oh, okay, we're going to pay the same price as the rest of our tools. And it's not the way it works. I mean, you're bringing a new technology to the market. There is nothing comparable to it. 
And then it's like, okay, well, how do we price this fairly that, you know, it's mutually beneficial for both the, the end consumer and tracks as a business or whatever startup it is. And it's not always, you know, easy to come up with a pricing model. And I think Jake can speak to this a bit with GDS where, you know, you guys undercut yourselves in the beginning with your pricing and it's kind of hard to figure out some of those things, but it's interesting that y'all have essentially developed this algorithm that you can base it off of usage and then just try to capture 10% of what they're saving. That's one of the things, yeah, like you mentioned. So with GDS where it was, we were kind of trying to figure out a pricing model. And so what do we do? We looked at the market and we said, how's everybody else pricing it? And didn't really think that at first that like everybody else was doing it wrong. Like, so it was like on a per well basis, but that didn't really factor into consideration, like how much production was that doing? And so then I thought, well, maybe we could do like on a production basis. But then I was like, well, that's not really fair because as they produce more, it penalizes them. And then eventually, you know, we settle on, on a per user basis. It's just like, here's what it is. We just, here's our starting price and you just tear it down. And that's the exact same model that we have for WellHub. You know, so mm-hmm. if you use the user-based pricing and that's what like everyone <clears throat> just wants to break it down to user-based pricing as an entrepreneur, there's a lot of challenges with that. Mm-hmm. Right? And we actually reached out to some outside consultants to help us with our pricing strategy and Matt Chamberlain and myself and even our new CFO, Lester Huang have, uh, you know, really looked at our pricing strategy and, and model and, if you base it on user-based pricing, you end up, there's a couple of things. You want this spider, you know, you want these, you want to get the stickiness in an organization. And and it's not about, oh, I want you to use more of track so I can make more money. It's also about that. But it's more like, especially with mineral buyers, our pricing is so low compared to the value add. It should be a dumb decision. You know, like it should be so easy for them to just say, let's buy tracks, right? Mm-hmm. We actually charge what we charge because if you don't, if you don't pay, if we gave you a pilot for free, for instance, you wouldn't actually start adopting it, but let's get back to the (laughs) user-based pricing thing. So the stickiness effect. So if you start charging by user, oh, it's $500 a user per month, right? Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, they're like, oh, that seems high. Let's negotiate that. But, and the reason is they're going to say, well, we've got two users that aren't really going to use it. You're right. You're not going to, they should not be paying $500, right? And also you have the other effect of stickiness, right? So if the client is then saying, well, now I'm just wanting to test it with five users. Well, as an entrepreneur in a startup, you, you don't want them to limit to five. You want to give everyone access so that you can find your heroes within the organization. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we price it. We, under, mm-hmm. we try to figure out what the organization is trying to do to figure out how much they're going to, you know, what kind of ROI they're going to get. And we're trying to capture at a minimum 10% of that because we're going to deploy it across their entire company regardless. Yeah. Right. And we're going to hope that something sticks and they start seeing that value. And then we're going to duplicate that process within the organization. The companies that have used tracks effectively pay the most and have more users right off the bat than anyone else. They adopt their own training policies. They adopt their own like best practices for the application itself. Mm -hmm. And they literally are making it a part of their business. And if you don't do that, you're not going to use it. The adoption, you know, you're not going to have adoption. And even though they're locked into five user licenses for 12 months as a startup, you don't want users. You want like active users. Yeah. So you want people that are actively. I mean, on, on that front, a couple of things about it, you know, we've even seen this like with something like Monday or Airtable or any other, you know, project management software like that from us personally, like one, 
it doesn't fucking work if you don't adopt it into your company and actually, you know, center your business practices around it. Like think about a, a simple project management software like Monday. If your whole team's not using it, it's not worth a damn, <laughs> you know, if nobody's tied in. So Jake's over there rolling his eyes. <laughs> and then also on the like user basing, we look at this all the time. We're like, holy shit, why is our Airtable bill, you know, $400 this month? And it's like, oh, well, we got this user on here, this user. Well, they don't really use it. And these three people aren't using it. So we kick them off. And so Airtable just lost revenue off of that. And so that's something that I've seen personally just from us using some SaaS-based software. So what's interesting about what you just said is making me think about we use Google Apps in our, our office, right? So. Mm-hmm. I pay 15 bucks per user and mm-hmm. it used to be five bucks. And, you know, I love Google, right? <laughs> so uh, if the uh, GV is out there, <laughs> we'd love to use your, we do use your cloud platform, no, <laughs> but no, we love Google. We love Google apps as a whole. Yeah, we do too. But they charge you five or 15 and the, their model is probably more data related than, than capturing that $5 or that $15 a month, but mm-hmm. you have to pay something in order to use it. That number is so low right? I don't mind adding users at that rate because it's so low. Yeah. But if your business model is not data capture, you need to charge something real, right? Mm-hmm. So like for WellHub or whatever, you know, or tracks, you know, if our model was, oh, we want to capture all of our users' data, we just say, oh, you know, it's some nominal fee that gets you committed, but oh, the, we got access to the data on the back. Yeah. Here. We're going to sell all, we're actually making a fortune doing this other thing. And that's mm-hmm. not what we're doing. We're not, we're not reselling customer data. We're, we're learning as much as we can about how our software gets used mm-hmm. to improve the app. So we had a huge release today, actually. Oh yeah. Which is this amazing. Everyone has a document library. Do you mind if I jump into this or? Yeah, yeah go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah. yeah everyone, everyone has this, you know, you can look at all the different LMS tools out there and they have, they have document libraries where you can add different, deeds or leases or whatever and just stores it in a folder it's essentially dropbox okay and you know i kept selling everyone oh we've got a document library too and we do we have this amazing document library but really we have something beyond that we have this interpretation library meaning we our system knows what every document actually means in relation to every other document and that's how we're able to compute certain things that are really relevant so while everyone else has a document library, great. You know, everyone has Dropbox. My mom has Dropbox. <laughs> you know. Uh, <laughs> Simple file storage. <laughs> I wonder if she does have Dropbox. I'm not sure. But I'm sure she does. Like, she has some simple yeah. file storage. But understand, having a system that actually, having an interpretation library and these party libraries that, you know, basically understand each other so that then we're able to propagate ownership to different software solutions that organizations already have is is super valuable because right now there's no single point of truth right like ever mm-hmm. there's excel sheets there's dropbox folders there's you never know which one's the accurate one you never know it's like we see this with like graphic designers all the time there's all the memes about like this is the final version of like something and it's like final final no but really <laughs> this is the last final and you have to do the same thing with, with any other kind of documents. Exactly. That, yeah. That's exactly right. And even further, take it from that and say, okay, well, I do actually have the final deed, but I have no idea what that means. And so somewhere there's an Excel spreadsheet, which also has final, 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 final. And mm-hmm. its interpretation is somewhere stored in that. And it's, you can't extract that data. So our ownership knowledge graph is built out of essentially a party library, interpretation library, 
and you know all the other data points used to build those things and i don't know where i was going with that other than to pitch it <laughs> no sounds cool buy tracks no <laughs> <laughs> no but i mean you, you look at that like and i think this is even when you look at well hub or some of these other technologies like oh why can't i just store my shit in, in dropbox or google drive or excel spreadsheets like we have been and I can tell you right now, talking to from the smallest companies to all the mid-sized companies to the largest oil and gas companies in the world, they've done it and it doesn't work. So if you want to try it, go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) The market openly accepts on the title side that 15, you know, five to 15% defect. A University of Utah study actually analyzed a bunch of leases and their number was like a 19.9% defect rate within those leases due to title defects. Jesus, man. So it's, it's crazy how like an entire industry can just accept something, huh? I mean, when it's, I mean, that's a pretty wide range of anomalies in a process, 15, 20%. And like, I mean, you're talking about a good chunk of, but it goes back to the conversation. I don't know where we had this conversation. Maybe it was with laser stream possibly talking about, ah, well, if it's not super efficient, you know, fuck it, let's just go drill another well. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, no, and that's kind of like the yeah. cultural barrier that we're having to like, I mean, can you speak to that at all as far as like what you guys have seen as far as like challenges, whether it's on the, t- I would imagine probably more culturally than it is technologically yeah. for you guys. Yeah. So it's really, we actually boil it down to it. And I wish that, you know, we had a vlog or something so I could draw, <laughs> draw on the board, <laughs> but no one ever got fired for hiring IBM. Right. And actually this is, you know, I love our VC partners because they understand how great of a change. We've, so we, we're partnered with Houston Ventures, mm-hmm. and Chip Davis and yeah. Fred Lummis, and they've been amazing at just supporting us through the process. But industry change or process change, especially in land or in any oil and gas space, is really difficult because doing it the old way doesn't get you fired. Mm-hmm. Until it does, I guess, right? Until, <laughs> until there is a... Until, until you do just, get laid off or... Yeah, yeah there yeah. is a bust. So how do we overcome those challenges? We have to make the conversation about reducing risk and improving process like transparency and standardization. In our business, it's, you know, you have all these different third-party people providing you data in different formats and forms, and you need it. You can't do much with it other than get what you exactly want from them. Mm -hmm. But if all of a sudden you have a platform that can, you know, create this ownership graph, you can do more stuff with it it's more accurate it's more it's all delivered to you in a meaningful way and you're saving time energy i do want to go into at some point like we can go into kind of like how these applications work but it's up to you guys so let's yeah. do it we got time let's talk about it man i remember a long time ago you were mentioning i know you mentioned ibm a second ago don't you guys use something with watson for tracks oh yeah, yeah so you saw our pitch deck our yeah, pitch. Yeah, 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 yeah 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 so we were like abacus meets you know, IBM Watson, yeah. or IBM's Watson. And the whole idea was right now everyone's using an abacus, which is, you know, pushing beads on a, on mm-hmm. a <laughs> abacus to calculate ownership, which was a bit of an exaggeration. But what we were saying is all of these processes should be automatable, right? Yeah. So with tracks, we don't think you can replace brokers. We don't think you can replace attorneys. And we get that resistance all the time. They literally just think their jobs are being cut when they look at tracks, they're like, everyone thinks this should be doable with computers, but we don't have OCR or ICR technology. GV, we would love to use some of your <laughs> natural language processing, some tests Well, you remember that LinkedIn post where I was talking about blockchain on LinkedIn, land and title, and I got like, I got landmen coming on there, I got attorneys coming on there, like everyone was just all 
up in their feelings it, about it, it, blockchain it, taking their job. It and made the, me think about that episode from South Park where they were like, they took our gerbs. They took our gerbs. There was a whole bunch of that <laughs> in the comments. Like, I don't think you really understand what blockchain Someone is. Someone asked me how blockchain is going to go and run title. I was like, I don't think you understand what blockchain is. <laughs> blockchain is not a person or thing. <laughs> yeah, it's not going to do it. Right? Yeah. The interpretation library is built with interpretations. Yeah. Right? That are made by the landmen in the field and no one's going to replace that right mm -hmm. they're made by the landman and then eventually attorney possibly reviews it right but what tracks does is it says okay this document has been interpreted one time right what everybody else says is here's a document and we say well here's a document and here's its interpretation and now let's propagate that into all of uh, you know let's propagate that into an ownership you know knowledge graph that can i use knowledge graph a lot of people don't know what a knowledge graph is but it's essentially just Telling you, you know, based on all of the different 18 dimensions or more of ownership of, of mineral ownership and leasehold ownership, who it is that actually owns everything and why and what the relationships are, and then giving that information into these other tools. So we're not replacing the landman. We're not replacing the attorney. We're saying, here's a better tool. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of using Excel, which, you know, you're, whether or not they feel liable for using Excel or not, and yes, it does decrease the amount of time it takes them to generate certain reports they still have a job if they're adopting tracks but if you don't you know tracks might not be the one that wins you know i openly accept that you know where i'm an entrepreneur right so being a first mover is hard mm -hmm. well it's it's hard right but people are going to move and so you can either help me do it mm -hmm. and be a part of that change mm -hmm. or someone else will help someone else and they'll do it yeah. and then you really will be replaced right so yeah how we overcome it is, you know, we really do ask our mineral buyers and our EMP companies because they pay for the service. It's free for all of those guys to use it. We ask them, you know, this is a decision. I won't even talk. And so anyone wants to learn about tracks, here's criteria number one to count yourself out. Okay. If you are not willing to either change who your brokers are, meaning switch brokers, you know, move from one to another, or you are not willing to change their behavioral pattern or the software tools that they're using essentially, you know, we're happy to work with you in the future, just not right now, mm -hmm. you know, just because we need you to be willing to be that, you know, force of change mm -hmm. within your organization's processes. And if you're not willing to do those two things, then we're going to run into the problems you guys are talking about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. For you specifically, Wellhub or for tracks, there are enough companies that want to change. And mineral buyers are made a bunch of usually young entrepreneurs. And even if they're older, they're definitely quicker movers. Mm -hmm. They're looking for that way to get to that lead as fast as possible for the best possible rate. I don't think there's a, a better way to get to a higher IRR than using tracks, but I could be wrong. Yeah. Could be biased. You're going to make a lot of money with tracks. <laughs> no, we're, I don't know, were we talking about it on air? Or was it before we started recording about? that local mineral fund here in Houston that was looking at building some internal software. And I mean, that was a group of younger guys and they were younger than us. Yeah. And you know, they, they were looking for their edge. And so I can definitely see that that's a competitive space and that those younger teams are going to be looking for that software that gives them a step ahead of the competition. So it's just like you said, you know, like it's hard being a first mover in this space, but somebody's, gonna win it might as well be you guys right well, you might as well have the mineral funds along it's also with you. good that you have the experience and the self-awareness now to know that dealing with companies who don't want to change would be a more of a hindrance to your mission 
than just taking the check and dealing with it, you know? And I think we're, we're well hubs in a kind of a lucky position as well to kind of be able to do that. We're, if I come into an organization and realize that they have some major cultural hurdles to deal with, I don't want the headache. Keep your money. Yeah. Figure that out first and then call me. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a tough thing to say no yeah. to, right? Especially you've got your VCs calling, you, you have your, you know, whoever's calling you, right? Yeah. So, you know, everybody has a boss. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Wait, you tell them, everyone told me that you're an entrepreneur, you don't have a boss. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's got a boss and, you know, you want the win. Uh, yeah. But if you go to your boss and you say, man, I got this win, whether it's your VC, your wife, your, mm-hmm. your whoever your partners are, and you say, we got this win. And everyone's so excited about the win. And then only three weeks later or two months later, it's deflated and they're looking for their money back or or you've got their money and you wish. As, a, as an entrepreneur, I don't want to take money from anyone. I yeah. want to provide something that they want to pay for. And if they're unhappy at the end of the day, I want to give them their money back. Now, in some cases, I can't do it, but that's my general feeling, right? So mm-hmm. the only way to do that is to screen the heck out of your clients and make sure that you're only talking to people that are really interested in improvement and they understand that improvement's going to have hiccups. If you have a client that's just like, okay, you know, I want the bleeding edge with no mistakes. You're just like, okay, Shell, I'll talk to you. And Shell is just a, a joke example, you know. <laughs> it, could be, it could be anyone, you know, any of the, you know, dream clients that you mm-hmm. want, right? You're not able to do that because if they don't understand, you know, the hiccups. And that's actually why big companies like Shell have Shell Ventures, right? Because they want to work through the kinks before they have these massive deployments. But, mm-hmm. you know, there are companies generally that aren't, you know, aren't. That's such a, such a good piece of advice. I mean, I know I can speak for both Jake and I. And you take a win when you get it or you think it's a win because in a, in a monetary uh, point of view, it is. But then, you know, not too far down the road, a month, month and a half later down the road, you understand that, okay, this in hindsight wasn't the best relationship. We should have screened it, vetted it a bit more and look for, you know, whether you're providing a service, you know, as a software, or if you're an oil field service, or if you're a consultant, whatever you may be, you want to really have, okay, what does that dream client look like for us? The person that's near the person or company that's ready to embrace this new technology that you don't have those barriers that you you're having to force and push. You want someone that's really willing to work for you that sees the value in what you're doing. And then I, th- I think that, you know, it's a win-win for both sides. But when you go into the relationship and they're already butting heads against you then it's just not going to end up well and, and you know if you're a if you're a, a good entrepreneur and you care about your work you know you get in those positions where you're like well if they're not happy then i feel like i need to you know they should get their money back or you should compensate them and you know that's that puts you in a bad spot so i think that was an excellent piece of advice for anybody that's out on their own or thinking about going on their own one of the situations i've been in multiple times and i'd be willing to put money that you guys have done the same thing is that having companies reach out and they think that you do something a little bit different than what you do. And they're like, well, can you like make this work? And, or maybe they're not like your ideal kind of client or it's in a different industry. And it would be easy to make changes and possibly make them happy. But kind of having that self-awareness of knowing like, this is what I do, staying in my lane and being hyper-focused, you know, we're, especially we like with WellHub, like we're an inch wide and we're a mile deep instead of a mile wide and an inch deep. You know, we're so hyper-focused on operators I don't really care about aggregating data for other industries. 
you know? And so we've had so many people reach out saying, oh, well, we were in the construction industry. Can you agree to date? I'm like, no, I'm just going to say no. And it's so easy whenever you have money sitting in front of you with companies who are just willing to, to just write you a check to be like, oh, maybe I can, maybe we can make this work. But then you lose, like what we talked about in the last episode with EKU, you lose focus, mm-hmm. you know? And I think that's so important. I'm sure you guys have experienced that too. I think it's kind of just the nature of software. Like nobody does that. Nobody like goes to a car dealership and is like, this car's great, but it'd be really cool if it did this too. And it's like, okay, what do you want me to do about it? But in software, they're just like, oh, you can just spin up all these cool new features or do something for a completely different industry. Just code that shit. Yeah, just code, just code it really quick. <laughs> yeah. Just code. Maybe you'll have more people do that now that they know that your your co-founder is a savant. <laughs> yeah, 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 he can spin it up in 30 minutes, right? <laughs> yeah, no, and, and that's what we always get, right? And it's true. It could be 30 minutes, but man- 30 minutes is very valuable to me, right? So, For sure. Especially if he can code up a solution that saves weeks and 30 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. No, we get feature requests all the time. And we're in sales meetings, and we always have to manage expectations, right? We'll get all the way through, and we're, oh, we're going to save you seven, you know, 15%, 20%, 50%, 30, you know, in these different areas, and this adds up to you know, this. And they're like, oh, but you know. If it did this one other thing, we'd buy right now. Yeah. You promise? You pinky promise? Can I see if your can I see if your fingers are crossed behind your back? Because you know, chasing that it's really it's called feature creep too, right? Yeah. So even with our existing customers, our most successful mineral buyers, and we have incredibly large mineral buying fund customers that are doing their like 90% of the other mineral buyers I go to, they just aren't even competing. Mm-hmm. Right? And no one knows who they are because they don't care if people know who they are, but they have developers on staff. They're coding up their own solutions rather than, you know, they understand that our focus is this and we're happy to guide them and help. But at the end of the day, uh, the people that are innovating are doing the, the best. I think that's where this conversation started. <laughs> yeah. But the feature creep thing, yeah, we get that all the time. You have to remain focused we don't get like cross industry people coming to us and mm-hmm. saying, Hey, can you help with this, this industry problem that internally happens where, you know, maybe, you know, Lester or CFO will be like, Oh man, if we just change, tweak this, we could do this. And it's like, plus the entire marketing advertising and, you know, salespeople that we yeah. hire yeah. have to hire to yeah. make that happen. A little overhead that goes along with that. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, you want to go start that business here? I'll help you. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so before we wrap this up, what's, you know, What's y'all's outlook for 2019? You know, what do you guys, do you got any any goals for the company of what you guys are really focusing on? Any Anything along those lines that you want to share? Yeah, so what we're really focused on is helping people leverage an ownership graph. You know, I've talked about it a lot. Essentially, let's get accurate and like this one single source of truth propagated to all of the other you know, places where you need that data, whether it's your mineral management or your lease management or your CRM, whatever, or your valuation tools, let's make sure that that has the most accurate, most recent information. And instead of thinking about things in the sense of document libraries and, you know, I have this data stored here in some Dropbox, think about interpretation, right? Our system knows what every document means to each other. It's not mm-hmm. that we just have the document library. Of course, everyone has a document library. We know once you've inputted a document and you've paid a landman to interpret it, which is what you're really doing, and then you've paid an attorney maybe to you know, reinterpret and to finalize what that means, why are you paying for that from section to section or track to track? 
if it has meaning to all of those tracks. Mm-hmm. And you shouldn't have to go discover that information. It should just there should be auto discovery. And with tracks, that's what we're doing. Our ownership graph, our ownership knowledge graph, is automatically created. Your interpretation library is automatically created as you're doing the processes you're already doing. And as soon as someone tries to do work you've already done, it's auto-identifying that it's already been done and says, here, do you want this interpretation, this interpretation, or this interpretation? And you select it, and it's there, and it results in more accurate answers and better results. Yeah, all the data that's input is, you know, based on relationships. It knows what's relation. You know, it's connected here, it's connected here, it's connected here, so... You know, it's not just a file on your desktop where you're going and dropping everything. It knows how it's all intertwined and connected. I like it. I dig it. One of the analogies that I like to use whenever you, I know you said single source of truth, and that's one of the things that I say with WellHub as well, especially when you're looking at like well master files and you have 25 different well master files and none of them match. So it's understanding and identifying a single source of truth for a certain piece of data in a certain context, right? And if people don't understand what that means, I say, okay, you're spoiled because you have online banking. Imagine if you didn't and you had like 25 different bank accounts and you really never knew which one was the accurate statement that you were getting and trying to manage all of this information because personal finances always touches people right in the heart. So using that analogy, it's like, okay, now you can kind of understand really what the oil field's like in, in a lot of different facets. I think that's an amazing analogy actually. So I would take it a step further. You say 20 bank accounts. I'd say, imagine you have three bank accounts. Oh wait, you do. And it is hard to understand what's coming in and what's going out from all three of those. Even if, you know, one person in your family focuses multiple hours a week on understanding their budgets and, you know, they use Mint, they use yeah. mm-hmm. QuickBooks, they, whatever, you know, TurboTax, uh, they use all those tools. The oil field has lots of bank accounts, lots of vendors. This is why you're seeing huge success with, you know, OGSIS, OilDex, mm-hmm. and, you know, you know, all the different companies that either doing helping with accounting or helping with organizing who, mm-hmm. who you need to pay what, you know, things like that. Rig up, I think, just did a huge round, you know. Like 60 just, million? Yeah, 60 million. So if anybody knows those guys, I've, I've never actually talked to them, so it'd be cool to get them on the show too. I think the <laughs> director of business development added me today on LinkedIn. We'll get them on the show soon. Oh, we'll get them on the show. <laughs> I think you should aim for the CEO. But <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, there's a lot of companies out there that are helping with revenue management and Things mm-hmm. like that because it's so complicated in oil, yep. you know, in our space, right? But yeah, I think that's a great analogy because in personal finance, we have trouble managing it when we have one bank account, two credit cards, maybe five credit cards. Think about it, like all the subscriptions that you have that you don't know about that just like keep coming out of your account. I mean, that you got like one, two, three, maybe accounts to take care of and like still shit's just like, There's, you know, coming out that you don't, you're not aware of and. Luckily for me, or maybe unluckily, Wells Fargo cancels my card like every three months due to like potential identity fraud. So then it cancels all these subscriptions <laughs> that I forget about, and I, n- I never really rack up anything anymore, luckily. so I, I don't think you're a millennial, but that's a millennial strategy for like, kids. Like, yeah, I don't know if I am either. You know, I'm right on the cusp, but there's actually a startup that came out. Uh, I saw that. That just does like... Oh, I've looked at your bank account. You have 15 SaaS, you know, SaaS software solutions. And, and SaaS products are the worst about it too because they don't tell you that that they're invoicing you. And then when you go to cancel it, like there's not just an option to cancel on some of I them. Had one of those. I won't say what it was, but it was a tool. It was a SaaS product. Call them out. <laughs> Investorhunt.com. Um, 
They actually, yeah, <laughs> they actually removed the button for like unsubscribe. That's a, they and all do to, that. You had to like message them. About they all that. do that. They make you contact. So. And I was like, good. So I want four months of the however much I paid you. And he actually refunded it all. Uh, there you I sent, usually, a, very, there I sent a very uh, nasty email, but he was actually pretty good. So. <laughs> if anybody wants any startup advice or anything in the future, they can feel free to email us as well. Awesome, man. On that topic, before we close this out, where can people find you? You're on LinkedIn personally. Yep. So we'll uh, include a, a link to your LinkedIn on the show notes. Can they find you at tracks? Is it .co? Yeah, tracks.co. You can okay. find me personally at ashley at tracks.co. And if you have any questions, I'm sure you guys, you know, they can reach out to you guys and push them over our way. We're happy to. Any independent landmen out there, any EMP companies, any mineral buyers that are either starting out or already existing that uh, want to talk to us about getting access. You know, generally, like I said, we do have a customer profile. But if you're willing to take that time to reach out, it's not about access without with, with us. You know, we're happy to give you access, but it's more about success. So we're trying to ensure that. But if you reach out and you're willing to participate in your own learning, we're happy to give you access. So. Awesome, man. Well, actually, we appreciate you coming on, man. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you, guys. Always a good combo, bud. All right, man. Come, 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 come.